This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The liver is the second most commonly transplanted organ. Nearly 10,000 patients received a liver transplant in 2021. The major factor which has limited the transplants performed has been the availability of donated organs, and some patients have waited several years before an acceptable organ becomes available. Transplants can be performed for a variety of end-stage liver diseases, usually giving patients years of additional life. Who's a candidate for a liver transplant, and what criteria for selection are required? Our topic for today is liver transplant selection criteria, and we'll discuss these questions with our guest, Dr. Michael Lisey from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Michael, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dr. Chutka. Let's talk a little bit about the history of liver transplantation. When did it start? What were some of the major milestones that uh, have taken place over the years? The first transplant took place at the University of Colorado under Dr. Starzl in 1963. The early days were rocky, much like any uh, new development or innovation in medicine and surgery. After that initial transplant, really there were a couple decades of kind of a rocky course with as far as outcomes and that related to patient selection, absence of medications, surgical techniques, et cetera. And really in the 80s, things started to improve. Our program here at Mayo Clinic started in 1985. Um, Really with the advent of more potent immunosuppressant medicines, learning how to use those correctly, improved operative techniques, anesthesia, sort of the team approach to liver transplant, uh, having lots of different disciplines involved, all of those things have really moved the field dramatically. And so currently, one-year survival rates are approaching about 95%, three-year survival rates about 85%. I have patients that were transplanted here in 1988, 1989 that are still coming back with their initial liver transplant, which is really incredible. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been an amazing success story. And the liver as an organ is somewhat unique in that it has remarkable ability to regenerate. And I was surprised to hear this, but Because of that, you don't have to transplant the entire organ, right? You can uh, take a segment off of a a living donor and uh, transplant that? Yeah, that's correct. And I think that's sort of the pathway that's not well uh, understood or or known about in the the general public. So you mentioned uh, over 10,000 liver transplants are performed in the U.S. per year, and it's only a small percentage of those that are coming from a living donor. But that's certainly an area that we and others are trying to grow because of the deceased donor organ shortage. And so a healthy individual can donate up to 69.9% of their liver, and that 30% will regenerate uh, actually in rapid fashion, where if you do a CT scan 10 to 14 days after donation, the liver has increased in size by approximately 75%. And the outcomes between a living donor transplant and a deceased donor transplant are very similar in terms of the longevity. There are some caveats or some nuances to a living donor 
in that they're a little higher risk for clots because of the small nature of the arteries and bile duct complications. But we contrast that with being able to know that you're going to get a good donor and you don't have to wait and, and deal with the unknowns and you can time the liver transplant. Those things usually offset themselves. Just for this, the sake of the describing the living donor process uh, in a little more detail, there's two lobes to the liver, right and left lobe. Most individuals end up donating their right lobe. Uh, the left lobe can be used, but uh, it's based on compatibility of size with the recipient. And there's some equations that we use to make sure that the recipient is getting enough liver and that the donor has enough liver to regenerate, to take care of them. We do anywhere from nine to 20 living donor uh, transplants here per year, uh, but it is an area that we're continuing to grow. Have living donors been used since the beginnings of liver transplantation, or is this a more recent? Uh, this is more, more recent. And in other countries, it's the only way that people receive a liver transplant. Here we can do living donor and deceased donor. Living donor transplant started at Mayo Clinic in, in 2000, just to give you an idea about the timing relative to deceased donor, which started back in 1963. To date, we've done, I think, just over about 310 living donors here in our program history uh, compared to just over 3,500 for deceased donor. Okay. How does it work? Does each transplant site have its own waiting list or is there a national registry or is it statewide? Um, what's the mechanism in the background of liver transplantation? When a patient is listed at a particular center, they're attached to that center, but they are on a national waiting list. And so that's a part of the transplant world that is, is changing. It seems to change every three to five years as far as some of the things behind the scene, but it is based on either having an elevated MELD score, which we can talk about in a little more detail, having a cancer that is within a criteria for transplant, usually it's a hepatocellular carcinoma and sometimes a cholangiocarcinoma or having complications or associated uh, conditions related to having underlying liver disease that qualify for transplant. So there's a number of those as, as well. The majority of people are going to be listed based upon what's called the MELD score. So that stands for Model for End-Stage Liver Disease. It was actually derived here in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and then the name changed and it was adopted nationally as the way to risk stratify patients awaiting liver transplantation. So that's based on the total bilirubin, the INR, the sodium, and the creatinine. And then you can plug those numbers into an equation or a calculator online. That's what most people do. And you get a number between six and 40. 40 generally means that you're very sick and your likelihood of, of dying from liver disease within a three-month period is approaching 80-85%. If you have a score of six, that's normal. The break-even point to having a survival benefit with liver transplant is around a MELD score of 15. So once you get above that, you're getting a, a survival benefit by undergoing a, a, a liver transplant. About a quarter of our patients uh, nationwide have uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, uh, cirrhosis, although it's not often just thought about this way is really a precancerous condition. So about two to 4% uh, risk per year of developing liver cancer with cirrhosis. So a large percentage of patients have liver cancer and those patients will qualify if they're within criteria for higher, what we call meld exception points. Um, the same is true for hyalur cholangiocarcinoma. And then there are several other associated conditions. So hepatopulmonary syndrome, portopulmonary hypertension, 
just to name a few, but those are some of the things and, and mechanisms as far as uh, getting a transplant and getting on the, and being prioritized for transplant. So the MELD score is just one of several means of prioritizing a patient for an upcoming liver transplantation. For the vast majority of patients, it's going to be, that's how they're going to be listed according to their labs and their MELD score. For the other patients with liver cancer or what we, what we call conditions that qualify for MELD exception points, they get an assigned score. It's usually the median MELD score at the time of transplant for your particular region, minus three points. So it, it prioritizes you just above what the average sort of MELD score would be at the time of transplant for your region. Okay. So what are the most, maybe three or four most common reasons a liver, a patient may need a liver transplant. Yeah. So it, it used to be that hepatitis C was a leading cause. Now with the advent of these direct acting antiviral therapies that are very effective at curing hepatitis C, that's sort of, you know, started to fall by the wayside over the last five years. The two most common indications as far as underlying liver disease are definitely alcohol related liver disease and non-alcohol related fatty liver disease. And then, like I said, somewhere around 25% of patients or so that are listed for transplant may have a hepatocellular carcinoma complicating those conditions as well. Okay. So what are the most common criteria that you use for a patient getting a liver transplant? It's pretty involved. You know, as far as the patient experience, they go through about four to five days of outpatient testing. Um, we, you know, for patients that are very sick, we do that in the hospital, but the majority will do this as an outpatient. There's an extensive number of tests that are run from blood work to standard echocardiogram to uh, stress echocardiogram, imaging of the chest, abdomen, pelvis. We look at bone health, nutritional status, psychosocial assessments. All of those things go into it, but I think that the things that we probably look at the most closely are going to be cardiac uh, status. So we want to make sure patients have a healthy enough heart to get through a major surgery in which blood loss is, is very common and that they can tolerate that stress. The other things that obviously we, we are going to look for is their anatomy. Do they have a portal vein thrombosis, which might make the surgery a little bit more complicated and the psychosocial assessment and dietary assessment. Uh, those things are very important to the transplant evaluation as well. Is age in itself a selection criteria? That is something we look at on a case-by-case -case basis. Technically, there's no upper limit of age. Generally, once people get to 70 or their early 70s, they generally need to be in fairly good condition with the exception of their liver disease, meaning you know they don't have some evidence of coronary disease, diabetes, hypertension, frailty, a lot of different. So the more of those factors that you add in at an age of 70 plus, the, the higher the likelihood is that the transplant is, you know, the post-transplant outcome won't be what people hope for. Okay. Are there any controversies in liver transplantation? Yeah, there's always controversies. I would say the, the, one of the controversies would be transplantation for patients with alcohol-related hepatitis. So not just alcohol-related cirrhosis, but having an acute alcohol-related event in the liver. We're certainly seeing that more commonly. As you know, uh, there's a, certainly an uptick in, in alcohol use during the pandemic. 
that's been fairly well studied now, uh, both uh, in Europe and in the United States, and with very careful selection processes. Individuals that have alcohol-related hepatitis can be transplanted and have good intermediate outcomes. Of course, relapse to alcohol use is the thing that we're most worried about in those individuals because they come in acutely. You don't have the opportunity necessarily for them to go through a chemical dependency treatment program before they get their transplant. So that has to happen afterwards. But the evaluation process is more intense for that group of patients because we don't have the luxury of time. We don't have the luxury of, of waiting to see how people fare with going through a, a, treat, a chemical dependency treatment program, gaining insight, et cetera. But it is becoming more common in the United States. It's becoming more acceptable to transplant for that uh, indication. So it's still a bit of a controversy, but I think we're on the tail end of that controversy rather than the front end. There are some other ones, transplantation for neuroendocrine tumors. That's always a, a, a difficult decision to make when you're in, in clinic. You know, the outcomes are quite good, but what we see is that, you know, there's a high likelihood for neuroendocrine tumors to recur after a transplant. That said, when they do recur, it's generally a slow moving uh, type of cancer. And so by taking out the liver that is maybe has, you know, is full of neuroendocrine tumor, you're sort of resetting the clock for those individuals and giving them extra years. Some other ones that are out there, things like uh, liver transplantation for colorectal metastases to the liver. I, I would say th those are th three of the ones that, that I can think of off the cuff, but certainly there's always controversy in medicine and, and certainly a transplant is not an exception. Sure. You mentioned acute alcohol hepatitis. Let's let's talk about alcohol-related liver disease in the chronic sense. How much concern is there that the patient will again revert to their drinking habits and develop cirrhosis with their new liver? How do you yeah. prevent that or how do you minimize that risk? The best way to, to do that is have a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so we have dedicated psychiatry uh, colleagues in our program and, and chemical dependency folks that are uh, heavily involved in this process. For the, the majority of people that have an addiction problem, they're going to be asked to go through a full treatment program. Generally, that's about 40 hours of addiction treatment, being involved in AA, having a sponsor, periodically reevaluating patients who are going through that process trying to gather whether they've gained insight, uh, making sure that they're doing sort of what we ask of them, but then also internalizing that and sort of wanting to do that and, and discovering sort of a new page in the book. There are some other ways that we monitor individuals, um, uh, urine, uh, alcohol metabolites, and there's now blood testing that is very accurate that can test for alcohol use within 30 days. But I think making sure that there's constant communication and reevaluation of, of patients that are struggling with addiction and making sure that we help them get to the right resources is really the most important piece of this. Depending on how you define return to drinking, the rates are very wide after post-transplant. So anywhere from you know 10 to 80%. If you if you're looking specifically at uh, return to daily chronic heavy alcohol use that's less common than the person that has a slip. And so it's really those people that return to heavy daily alcohol use where we're worried about them having a problem with their graft uh, and, and losing the, the liver transplant. I would say it, 
it happens less than you might expect it to. Every now and then we have somebody that really struggles with their addiction and, and has a tough time breaking it and has multiple relapses of heavy drinking. And depending on who the patient is, if it's a younger patient, a lot of times they, they can get through that. So we sort of are very persistent, even with people that have had relapses, had slips, et cetera, to make sure that we're still, that they understand we're on their team, that they get plugged into the right resources and that a slip doesn't mean that they're going to return to drinking, you know, indefinitely, but certainly always a concern, but I would say our, our, in general, our patients with alcohol related liver disease do very well post-transplant in the general sense. And as far as their longevity and survival. Okay. So what circumstances or conditions would disqualify a patient from a liver transplant? I think the thing that we see more commonly now is frailty. And so having cirrhosis is a catabolic condition. It's associated with muscle breakdown. In fact, for patients that have decompensated uh, cirrhosis, we recommend that they have 1.2 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, so if it's a 60 kilogram female, it's going to be 90 grams of protein a day, which is a pretty tall, tall order. So we see a lot of individuals that have muscle wasting. There's variability in that, but some individuals have severe muscle wasting to the point where it's difficult for them to ambulate and do activities of daily living. When that is the case, we are concerned that getting they, there's just not enough physical reserve to get through a liver transplant. And so a lot of our ongoing assessments when we're seeing patients back as they're on the waiting list is you know, amongst many other things is looking at their nutritional health, their muscle mass, their physical functioning. And at the extreme end of that, for people that are very deconditioned, have a lot of muscle wasting, et cetera, some of them need tube feeding for a period of time, prescribed physical therapy, those sorts of things. That's a very common thing that we worry about where somebody's waiting for a transplant where if they sort of fall off that cliff and get too malnourished and too deconditioned that, that a transplant may, may no longer be feasible. Other examples would be liver cancer that grows and it's out, is outside of the national criteria. That's known as the Milan criteria. So you can have one, one tumor up to five centimeters or three tumors up to three centimeters. If you're beyond that and we can't shrink them down with things like local regional therapies, that would be another reason that some people fall out. That's actually fairly uncommon. Return to chemical dependency, you know, people that are going back to alcohol and it's, and it's not just a slip where it's severe and ongoing, that would be another reason somebody might not be able to get a transplant or severe psychosocial types of issues. Those would be the ones that we run into, not uncommonly, I'll put it that way. If you could look into your crystal ball and predict the future of liver transplantation, what, what do you see? What hopes do you have? Uh, any new advances that you see coming? Uh, what do you see for the future? I do think that there's still a, a bright horizon for living donor liver transplant. And I think that that will continue to grow here and, and likely elsewhere in the country. I think there are a number of sort of regenerative medicine types of therapies that, that look promising. Right now, we have something that we use off-label uh, for patients that are uh, really sick, maybe have acute liver failure, and as a bridge to transplant, need some support, and that's called the MARS machine. It's basically like a liver dialysis machine, and not something we commonly use, but it is available. Yeah, so there are other therapies that are, are similar to MARS therapy, these external sort of liver dialysis machines. 
Xenotransplantation is something that has often been talked about. Um, I don't see anything coming in the immediate uh, future in that regard. One of the things that has become it's kind of a buzz in the liver transplant field is different perfusion devices for deceased donor livers. Um, and those seem to be very promising, especially for use in a subset of donors. Most donors are deceased after brain death. There's also a deceased after a cardiovascular death donor. And those patients are those donors, the livers that we put into patients, there's some risk of what's called ischemic clangiopathy, where they develop a stricturing and sloughing of the bile ducts. And that can happen in about 10, 12% of patients that receive that specific type of deceased donor. And these perfusion machines seem to be helpful in reducing that risk. So I think I, overall, the future is bright. I think the regenerative medicine is going to be very interesting in the next one or two decades and the role that that plays in, in liver transplantation. We've got a few individuals here who their research and their career is dedicated to that. So I, I think they're doing great work. Mike, you've given us a lot of information about liver transplantation. Can you give maybe two or three key points which summarize our discussion? The first point I would make is that transplant is very common right now for patients with alcohol and non-alcohol fatty liver disease. Those are the two most common indications that we're seeing with uh, liver cancer being also uh, a common indication for uh, transplant. Many times it can be confusing as to when to refer a patient for a liver transplant. And so again, we use that MELD score of, you know, nearing 15 or somebody who has a lot of decompensating events. So encephalopathy, ascites, jaundice, renal dysfunction, variceal bleeding, those sorts of things. It can also be confusing as to when to refer somebody who has alcohol-related liver disease. The rule of thumb has always been, you know, sober for six months before you can get a transplant. That now is no longer the case. Um, I think it's more of a case-by-case basis for each patient, especially if they have alcohol-related hepatitis, the acute form. And I think the other key points here would be, you know, as I mentioned, frailty is a, a very common reason for patients to not be able to go go forward or transplant if they're on the waiting list. And so attention to ambulatory status, making sure, you know, patients are walking, they're getting their protein and all of those things at an early stage is uh, much better than playing catch up on the back end and, and having to resort to things like tube feeds and, and that. We've been discussing the selection criteria for liver transplantation with Dr. Michael Lisey from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. Mike, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thanks for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music